Hi, welcome to More Like the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry reform and advocacy. I'm your host, Vinkivia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. So, on today's episode, we have another one of our resilient reentrance um, episodes. And just to give you a reminder, because we haven't done too many of these, but the resilient reentrance uh, episodes are a special collection that we have that are specifically dedicated to individuals who have been impacted by the justice system or have served a period of incarceration. And it's really just a segment for them to talk about their experiences with the criminal justice system, as well as their experiences after they have been released from incarceration. And so really, like I said, just talking about the struggles that they may have encountered on this journey, as well as the successes and any other like advice that they may provide to individuals that are also going through a very similar process. Um, this is one of my personal favorite segments of the podcast, and I'm just really grateful to be able to have a segment like this. So for today's episode, I have an individual with us that is very open and willing to share their experiences with us, and that is Jessica Hicklin, who is the founder and the CEO of Unlock Labs, which is a tech nonprofit whose vision is enshrined in its company motto, which is building a better justice system from the inside out. Um, this is also going to be one of the things that we're going to be talking about on here, too, as Jessica dives into her story. Um, so just to give you a little bit more information about who Jessica is, Jessica came to this role as a formerly incarcerated individual who spent 26 years on the inside, during which time she crafted and facilitated many educational initiatives. So in partnership with Unlock Labs and other currently incarcerated individuals, Jessica's latest project is the creation of a learning management system that is created by and for justice-involved individuals. When she is not working to advance the presence of post-secondary education in the carceral space, Jessica is also an advocate for the rights of trans folks. Um, throughout her incarceration, she brought and won two landmark trans right cases, which is the Hicklin versus Lombardi, I think I said that correctly, and Kansas birth certificate case. So I would just say I'm very appreciative and very grateful to have you on today, Jessica, just to talk about your experiences. Um, and so thank you. So thank you for having me on. And uh, yeah, I hopefully uh, by sharing some of my journey, it will be it will definitely be more helpful uh, and maybe informative to folks who are interested in what this journey is like. Um, I'll just give a couple of clarifications real quick. Uh, the one is. Um, the, the case, the Missouri case was in fact called, uh, Hicklin versus Lombardi at one point, but if somebody tries to find it now, it will be under Hicklin versus Precise. And the Kansas case was called Foster versus Anderson. Um, and the other clarification I'll give is that, um, I currently said it's the CTO of Unlock Labs. Um, but yeah, hopefully those things, I can share some of that journey as well. And, uh, it'll be informative with people. Yes, and thank you for clarifying those things. Of I, I must have just written it wrong on here. I apologize for that. Um, but yes, yeah. I I thank you. Like I said as well, and um, I guess if you don't mind, uh, kind of like when I'm facilitating these conversations here, I really like to kind of start from um, the beginning and work our way to kind of where we are now, um, like now as in like the present day. Um, so if you, do sure. you care to share with us, you know, like your initial experiences um, with the criminal justice system and and how, you know, that has uh, evolved or 
Yeah. So um, I think you mentioned that I, I, I had served 26 years, but um, the slightly larger story there is when I was 16, I was convicted of homicide and sent to prison on a life without parole sentence. Um, and the details of that are necessarily, I mean, we can share if, if relevant or they're easy to find, but uh, when when I was sent into prison, I was a juvenile, and at that time, I was never supposed to go home. And, of course, anybody who has any familiarity with the justice system knows that when from the time you're arrested till the time you actually see prison is not, you know, a very short period of time. So by the time I actually set foot into prison, I was 18 years old by just a few weeks. And I had never been in trouble with the law before. I had I had no prior record, so it was it was a whole other world for me. And... It was a world I honestly wasn't prepared for. When I first stepped into the uh, Potosi Correctional Center, my introduction was basically, you know, you you, uh, you have a lot of time. You're gonna be, you're gonna die here. Figure out what to do with yourself, and that was really how I was introduced to prison. And then they sent me off into um, what then was considered the the predator wing of of the institution based on a certain uh, classification that they used. And so I was. Honestly, scared, and uh, took me took me quite a while to figure out what that first statement meant about figuring out what to do with my life. So that that was really my introduction to the criminal justice system. So um, your history started. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I'm I'm just going ahead and just uh, see if you want to kind of direct it and tell me how much is relevant. I mean, I can give you the whole story, but it, it's kind of long. It's 26 years, so I'll let you ask a question and sort of direct us to where you want to go with it. Oh no, no, you're fine. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't ever really ask about details of you know what happened or anything like that. Like you said, I don't really think. Um, sometimes that's, I don't think it's relevant. Um, I'm more okay. interested in just about you know kind of your journey from you know being earlier, being involved in the criminal justice system at a very early age and the impact that it had on you, you know, as you transition to adulthood and as you move from juvenile facility to correctional facility. Oh, okay. I can certainly talk a little more about that. Um, So while I was 16, when I was arrested, I only spent 30, I think 35 days in juvenile facilities. You know, back in the mid nineties, there was not this concept of we need to separate kids from the, the adult system. And so after 35 days and being certified to stand trial as an adult, I was moved to an adult county jail. There was no segregation or no treating me any different than any other person who had been arrested for a crime, you know, who wasn't a juvenile. And so I was in Warrensburg, Missouri, sitting in the county jail with folks that were uh, anywhere between, you know, 18 and, and 65. And, even that was, you know, like I said, I had no experience in the criminal justice system, had never been to juvenile facilities. And so it was very rude awakening. And, and also in some ways, really my first indication that, you know, that the next chapter of my life that was just starting then was going to be a very rude awakening. And it was, you know, I, I learned to survive in the county jail and, you know, it was a pretty small one, so there was not the standard what you see on, you know, TV, like uh, 90 Days In or whatever the show is called. But uh, um, there wasn't so much a lot of violence, so there was a little bit, but it was just really, you know, I, I woke up every morning in, in a single man cell and then was, you know, didn't see the sun for a year and a half. You know, they there was no outside time or anything like that. 
And then on the other side of trial, I immediately went to, you know, the adult institutions in Missouri. And, you know, there's at the time they did like a reception and diagnostic center. So I was hanging out. Um, I wasn't even in a cell because they already had overcrowding in the mid nineties. So I was just on a, on a bunk bed in the middle of the wing with all these, these people who were there from everything from minor, you know, petty theft to, to homicide and everything in between. And it was really, I don't even know how to begin to describe what that experience is like for an 18 year old kid, you know, other than to say, there's no way to prepare for that. There's no way to, to even conceptualize that that's what, you know, it's like to be a kid and facing the rest of your life in prison. And, you know, I spent six weeks there in diagnostics and going through this process of being asked questions like, where do you want to do your time? Which that the, you know, in retrospect is a completely absurd question. You know, how do you answer that? And I decided based on what was billed as vocational uh, opportunities that I would go to the Potosi Correctional Center. That's what I asked for. Nobody told me that that was the death row prison in Missouri. That that was considered one of the roughest prisons in Missouri at the time. It was just, yeah, yeah, you can you can go there and learn a trait. And so they sent me to Potosi, and I was there. Oh, all of about two weeks before I really had an understanding of what it like, okay, this, this is my life and this is where my life is going to be lived. And, you know, at the, in the nineties and Potosi, everybody, you know, 95% of the people were never going home. They were there to be executed or there to spend the rest of their lives. There was no cameras, really no supervision. So Potosi was a really violent place in the mid nineties. And that's where I, I grew up. And I was all of, well, about two weeks in, whenever I found myself in the administrative segregation for the first time, uh, for 35 days. And that was where I really, so I had two weeks of experience of like prison where I'm going to be. And then 35 days of solitary to think about what that really meant. And that was, that was, honestly, it was hard to wake up the next day, you know, to, to look at life and say, oh, why am I going to do this? Why am I going to live this out? But that was really with the challenge I was faced with. And for, for the, the record, the reason I was put in solitary for 35 days is because they asked me to change cells, and I told them I didn't want to. Didn't quite understand the rules at the time, and so they decided they were going to teach me very quickly that when they tell me to do something, I'll do it. Um, and I spent the next uh, probably three years really just in a whirlwind, you know, trying to survive, trying to, you know, I, I was sexually assaulted several times in my first couple of years in prison. Um, I mean, I was, like I said, I was 18. I was a skinny little kid um, in a prison full of, you know, what I understood at the time to be everybody was a predator, which is, I've learned later is not true, but at the time, that's how I felt. And I was just trying to make it. And, you know, I got another chance to really sit down and consider my life not long after that, whenever I was released in solitary confinement for nine months. Um, basically, I was defending myself from the next uh, sexual assault that somebody was threatening me with. And, and as a result, they, even though the institution knew what the incident was, they decided I needed some time to think about it. And it was during that nine months of solitary confinement that I really truly came to grasp the turns of what my life had become and what at the time I understood was the future of my life. You know, I, I wasn't going to ever be anywhere else. I was never going to fulfill the dreams I had as a kid. I mean, I was, I was in college when I went in and I was hoping to be an actuarial science and study in Germany and, you know, 
built this career and the, you know, the life I was told I should live. Instead, I was sitting in an isolation cell, you know, 20, 23, but, you know, rarely did you get out of your cell back then. Um, staring at the concrete walls with no property other than like a pen and paper and just really assessing what my life had become and trying to decide what did I want to try and salvage out of my life. And that's sort of, that's sort of where I found myself, which is not really the case most of the time. Most of the time when people are segregated like that, it is, it causes lasting trauma. But for me, it's where I figured out I didn't want to be the person I was anymore. And I didn't want my life to amount to it, nothing. And so I really when I decided I was going to become a Buddhist, it's when I decided that I was going to spend, you know, spend my time trying to educate folks and do what I can to find meaning in a life that otherwise I was told was meaningless. Um, on the other side of that nine months in solitary, once I got back in general population, I really set about trying to actualize that, that those decisions I had made. You know, I, uh, I actually started fighting for the right to practice Buddhism as a religion. It was a two-year fight before it was recognized. Uh, Missouri didn't, didn't understand what Buddhism was at the time. Um, but I also got into, uh, me and a few of my friends started developing and facilitating classes over the next several, well, actually the next couple of decades. You know, I, I spent time as a GED math tutor, and I spent time, we created, a, we created and facilitated a victim empathy course. And over the years, I uh, I got really involved in restorative justice, helped found a restorative justice committee and, and started, you know, helping people find meaning and giving back to a world that they were told they didn't belong in anymore. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a couple of, you know, that was the beginning of the journey that leads me to the person I am today, honestly. And I'll stop there to see if you have any questions before we kind of cover some of that time period. Yeah. Um... So it seems like you were able to, during your nine month kind of solitary confinement is when you were able to do that reflection, that more thorough reflection. And that's when you kind of decided to start taking the necessary steps to, you know, change your life and um, live a more meaningful life, even though you were still incarcerated. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Okay. So, so once I, sorry, uh, once I, I came to that realization, it's sort of, it's when I picked my path for the rest of what I understood to be the rest of my life. And I just dedicated myself to it. Like I said, I, I my face grew. I, I ended up taking vows to that effect and, and teaching uh, Buddhism for a while. But I also, I dedicated like all the hours of my day to that concept of, you know, and I guess I should explain why. You know, the, the world I came from, you know, education is what gives you agency in life. That's what I was told. That's what I was taught from the time I was very young. And so I, you know, early 20s, trying to find purpose, you fall, you fall back on what you know. And what I knew was if people had education, they would have agency. They could have some level of control over where their life went. So if I couldn't go home, I wanted other people who went home to have that option of, of staying there and of becoming part of society again. And so, like I said, that, that spent the, I spent the rest of my time in prison, uh, guided by those two ideals, honestly, my, my faith and my belief in the, and the essentialness of education. And it took many forms over the years as we were allowed to, but it also, 
it gave me a reason to wake up every morning. You know, when I, by the time I came home, I usually got up at six in the morning and went to bed somewhere, you know, midnight or so. And most of the hours in between were dedicated to some level of providing access to education or programs to somebody. Um, and, the, and somewhere along the ways, we were allowed to start a closed circuit television station inside the institution, me and a few of my friends. And even that was dedicated to the purpose of extending access to, to opportunities to other folks. I mean, the very first channel we were allowed to run was to advertise restorative justice activities that people can be involved in. And as we grew it, the next thing we started offering was uh, high set and adult basic education information. So yeah, I really, that time in isolation is where I decided what was meaningful in my life and what would make my life meaningful. And I have really, truly lived by those ideals, I think, to this day. Yeah, I do, I do think education is a very um, important piece of, you know, just personal agency. Um, so I definitely understand the value in that. And um, I'm wondering, so you said that you, was it a life sentence that you were given? No. So when I first went, I was given life without parole in a hundred years, which means I was literally never supposed to leave prison. That was, you know, which was the thing I had to grapple with during that nine months is to, you know, you would think this is a concept really hard to explain to people that when you're sentenced, you know what that means, Mm -hmm. but how do you process, like, especially when you're 18, Hey, you will never, ever go home. I mean, most 18-year-olds don't understand. That's why we don't let them do a lot of things. They don't understand what it means to have a whole lifetime of something. And for me, the sense I was given was your entire lifetime will be spent inside of prisons and never anywhere else. It wasn't until years later that the laws changed that I actually had the opportunity to come home. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. At what point was was the decision made we're going to release you or you were going to let you go home. At what point was that made? Was there, was this a policy thing? It seems like it was, you said it was a policy thing that was changed or um, kind of what happened there. I can give sort of a longer context to that because I was definitely involved in the middle of that whole process. Um, so there was a, a juvenile justice um, reform that started in the mid two thousands with uh, first the United States decided they shouldn't execute juveniles anymore. And Sort of as a bit of uh, maybe irony, Um, my cellmate was the uh, was the defendant in that case, Christopher Simmons, and he was facing execution uh, as for a case that he caught when he was 17. And through a lot of advocacy work and litigation, eventually the United States Supreme Court, well, the Missouri Supreme Court, and then the United States Supreme Court decided that juveniles shouldn't be executed. But that wasn't the end of that that litigation trend. Eventually, it pushed further into saying, well, maybe we shouldn't send kids to prison for um, death in prison sentences is what they call them, you know, life without parole. Uh, and it took, another, it took another decade before we got to the point that truly, actually a little more than that, that truly they said, you cannot mandatorily sentence a juvenile to life without parole. And during that process of, first it was Robert versus Simmons, and then uh, Graham versus Florida, Miller versus Alabama, and Montgomery versus Louisiana. Eventually, we got to the point where the United States Supreme Court said that my sentence itself was unconstitutional. And in the process of other litigation I was involved in, finally made it to the point where they said, you know what, after you've done 25 years, we'll give you a parole hearing. And they did. And that 25 years was last year. And well, well then after I saw the parole board, they told me, yeah, you can go home. You've done enough, and you've and you've 
you've tried to do good with your time and good with your life, we'll, we'll let you have an opportunity to go back home. So I truly, the opportunity, uh, well, when I first had an inkling that I may go home started back in 2005, but that was a long ways away from actually going home. And there were times, there were, there were ups and downs. You know, we had, we had losses in the courts that set us back. And, um, there were times where they would, they would split a hair. And so juveniles with life without parole, as long as it wasn't for certain crimes was, um, deemed illegal. And it wasn't really truly until 2016 that I, I knew I would have an opportunity to argue going home. But as far as actually knowing that I would one day walk out the door, that was July of last year. Um, when they told me uh, in six, I had a six month, um, release date where I would actually go home. And, you know, what were you feeling at that time, like in July, when they told you that, what, what was happening for you? What, like, were you experiencing? <laughs> oh, that's a hard, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, what do you, what, how do you go from, uh, I'm going to live in a one square mile for my the entirety of my life and try and find meaning out every day to no, you, you get a second chance at doing whatever you want to do with your life. Um, I was obviously elated, but uh, for my friends who know me and know me well enough, I, I immediately started planning. Uh, that's that's how am I going to make the most of this opportunity? How am I going to go home and and uh, one of my friends kind of gives me hell because I even made a spreadsheet about the uh, <laughs> the first few weeks of what what I was going to do with my time to make sure that I got back on my feet and, and didn't fail. So I was elated, but I was also anxious. You know, I I was getting the one chance, and I really understood to be one chance come back home and to be, to join society in a way that I never had before. And I had to do it right. I had to do it in a way that was meaningful, not just to me, but to all the other folks who are hoping to have that same opportunity. So yeah, it was, it was joyful and anxiety inducing all at the same time. Yeah. I can imagine. So like, um, like you said, how do you navigate when I've, I've equipped myself and, um, I've actually set in that, you know, I'm going to be here for life. Um, but and now they're telling me I can go home. Um, yeah. I'm I imagine that well, there was some. Feel- go ahead, go ahead. I'm I'm fortunate enough that because a lot of the work I've done, I had a really good network of support. And I will I tell people time and again, if you want to know the difference between people who succeed at coming home and don't, a lot of it is their connection in the community, their their access to people who will help them navigate the world. I mean, think about it. I was 18 when I went in and came home at 42. A few things changed in that time, <laughs> things that I had no idea how to navigate. And for me, the good people I've had in my life that helped me navigate that course um, made all the difference. And that's really, you know, before I actually got there, that was the thing that made it, I'm going to be okay. Because I have people who actually care and people who will show me what, what I need to know. And, and so knowing that, I, I really turned, really turned my attention towards starting to study what those things were. So at least I had a clue of what questions to ask. I mean, one of my friends got me a, a, a manual for my smartphone that I, I had never seen in my life. When I went in, your phones were still attached to the wall and uh, gave me no end of hell as he said, why would you want a phone that like nobody reads those things? I'm like, yeah, but I've never had one. And so that's really what I did with the last six months was, trying to study manuals about how the world worked in a different way than what I saw, which was still humorous to me even today. But, you know, 
it helped fight back the anxiety and made, and made the whole concept manageable. It, made, it took me from, oh, how am I going to do this thing to, it's possible. It's going to be rough. It's possible. Um, yeah, so I basically turned my attention to my network and started trying to figure out, one, what I need to ask of them, but also, two, how I can be the least burden down on them. Yeah, and um, I appreciate you for sharing that because I do think social support is like such um, an important thing for this process because if you have that social support, you are more likely to be successful because you have people that can very much teach you uh, these ways of the world um, and how to move in the world when your world has been totally different. Um, And I guess I'm wondering if I could just go back just a second. Can you talk a little bit about... uh, um, the anticipatory anxieties that you were having um, that you, or you may have had, you know, before you actually started leaning into or realized that you needed to lean into your social network to be able to help you. Sure. Uh, absolutely. Um, just a second. Um, so from the time, well, first of all, the anxiety first really started with, you know, I had my hearing and I had to wait on a result to come back. And so there's this like, want to be hopeful. I had this hearing and maybe I'll get to go home, but also juxtaposing against that, um, there was some opposition to my release. And sorry about that, but uh, there was some opposition to my release and, and, and being afraid that I wasn't going to get the opportunity. So there was that initial period of about two weeks where I had to um, really sit down and assess is this even going to be an opportunity? And then they came back and said, okay, you have six months. And that's when I really had to start calculating, okay, what do I need to do in six months? And there was, there was a lot of fear about, you know, I, I knew there was a lot of things I didn't know, but how, how do you, how do you know what those things are? And if you've never been in the world and they give you some examples of things that I stressed, um, credit cards weren't a thing when I was a 16 year old kid. You know, how do I deal with credit? How do I deal with electronic money, uh, smartphones? You know, I know that everybody sort of relies on their smartphones to get around the world, but I, I've never had such a thing, never seen one. Um, technology in general is a gap. I was fortunate to have a job that let me have some access, but you know, in a world of technology, when I'm coming home with, you know, when I went in, AOL was the big thing. And so I was, I was, was afraid of, how to deal with money, how to deal with technology, knowing I didn't have a credit rating. No, I didn't, you know, I hadn't driven in 26 years and knowing that I was going to a place where I had to drive. Um, I knew I had a job waiting on me, which was a big blessing, but you know, the last time I filed taxes when I was 16, but I was worried about being able to get my taxes filed correctly and not, not messing that up. Um, I really stressed every aspect of adulting life that you can possibly think of. Um, yeah, stressed it. And, I found myself studying driver's manuals while I was there and phone manuals and, and uh, uh, a tax form. And so I really was afraid of screwing up the things that every, everyday adults take for granted. And to kind of hone it in a little bit, I decided in my two-week spreadsheet that the first day out, um, I was also afraid of social anxiety. So, you know, I, I, I knew everybody I knew in a small space for so long. So I knew that I was going into a world where I didn't know people. So I told my family that the things I wanted to make sure I did on the first day when I came home was um, I wanted to go to a grocery store. <laughs> Knowing I heard too many stories about people getting stuck in the cereal aisle becoming kind of options. So I said, I want to go to the grocery store, even though it's going to be anxiety inducing. 
and I want to go to the DMV and take a written test so I can at least start this process. And <laughs> um, funny enough, I went to the DMV and I was late enough in the day that they literally yelled at me, get out, we don't have no more room, which was funny to me actually and probably helped because I really wasn't ready to do the test and, and it was kind of a reminder of it. Nope. Some things in the world never change. The DMV is still hard to navigate. <laughs> it was anchoring. And the grocery store was very overwhelming. You know, but that's just it. Every aspect of life before I even got there, I was anxious about because I knew it would be different. And sure enough, it was. And, you know, one thing that I've just noticed, just like as you are talking, that I want to ask you is, you seem to like when you were going through this process, you knew that these things these adulthood things would be challenging for you. And you seem to be able to articulate them very well as far as of like what you needed. Like, I want to do this, but I need help with this. Um, In my experience of like just working with people who have this shared experience as you, they're not as articulate as that most of the times. Like they don't know how to even just ask for that help. So how, how are you able to do that? And, um, you know, what advice would you give to people that, you know, they don't know how to even ask for the help? Sure. Uh, that's a very good point. And that that goes back to the network of people I had. Because I had people to ask, hey, what do I not know? And I had many people who offer, like, all kinds of ideas. And some of them like, no, I know how to do that. But generally speaking, I had a bunch of people who adult every day. I could say, what is that like? And they would tell me, like, what is the stressors they have and what are the things they struggle with and what are the things they think I don't know. And it really was the network of people I had on the outside who could continually provide me the information on what it is to, to live everyday life that really helps me understand the questions I needed to ask. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that can be like a challenging thing. Cause like I said, I've just seen people where, you know, they, they don't have that social network like you may have had to be able to even ask those yeah. questions or um, they may be dealing with other things that prevent them from asking the question. So it seems like you're saying having that social support system to be able to guide you through these kind of adulthood tasks that you probably, yeah. especially if you've been incarcerated for a long period of time, have not indulged in um, was very yeah. vital. Yeah, I mean, I would I would credit, I mean, I've had a really successful journey home. I'm, I've been home almost 10 months, and then life has been beautiful. And I would truly say, no matter how much prep I thought I was doing on my own, the deciding factor as to, as to the quality of life I have has really, truly been that social network. Those people who are there to help, help me if I fall down, but also to just help me find my own way in the world. And that, without that, you know, I, I have... Because of the work we do, I, I come into contact with people like the moment they walk out and I see people just struggle with some of the most things, the things that I take for granted even now because you know, it's just part of adult life. And that's the difference. They didn't have anybody to tell them what to expect and nobody to help them figure out how to, to navigate that expectation. Yeah. And are there any other, because um, like earlier, the way you framed it was um, you were when you were talking about social support was that you know, social support can be, can define whether you're unsuccessful or you're successful. Um, Are there any other factors that you know or have seen that also that are associated with either, you know, being successful or being unsuccessful? Yeah, I can identify two pretty quickly, actually. Um, The one is simple employment. 
you know, I walked out on a Friday and went to work on a Tuesday and Monday was Martin Luther King. So, um, to walk out of prison with, well, I, I, I was fortunate I had resources walking out. So I had, um, sorry, let me, let me do this a little clearer. I walked into a job, out of prison and into a job. So I knew I had a paycheck coming. I knew I could meet my needs. And in between, even, even though I had a job, it took an entire month before I saw my first paycheck. So for me, I had $3,500 in my pocket from money I'd saved while being in that bridged that gap from the day, the day coming home till my first paycheck. But, you know, if you think about that for a second, I had a job waiting on me. It's a, it's a good job with health insurance and everything else. For folks that have to come home and then find a job, and who, how do you bridge that gap? You know, you're, you're, you're sitting in a house that you can't pay for or, you know, you're living in somebody's basement, but you can't pay your bills. So having, having some level of financial support to even get me to my first paycheck was, was a very big deciding factor. And having the, the paycheck coming, you know, I can work for was the second one. And the third one was when I came home, I actually didn't go to like a friend's house or anything like that. I went to a organization called Center for Women in Transition at the time who they provide wraparound services. So I actually walked into an apartment. Uh, my first month's rent was free. I wasn't expected to pay it unless I could, which I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. But I had the, the peace of mind of knowing if for something went wrong and I, I had one month of a place to stay and they had a bus pass and a food card. And, you know, because again, most people don't think about this. If you walk out the door today, you have what you have in your pocket. You don't get any, you know, they don't give you any money. But most of you may have like eight bucks in your pocket. And how do you get groceries? How do you get food? I didn't have all those struggles because I had an organization that gave me the services and I had money in my pocket and a job to go to. And without that combination of things, I can't even imagine what it's like to 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 struggle with, you know, how are you going to turn your lights on, get your heat and put food in your belly and all those things that become an, uh, uh, they become a reality, reality that moment you step out the door. So yeah, there, there was a lot that goes into it, but at the end of the day, it usually boils down to you have to have your basic needs met. If you're, you know, it's, it's that whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs concept. You can't be productive member of society and contributing, you know, emotionally stable person. If you can't eat and you don't have, you know, your lights on. So. Yeah, I agree. And I think as you were talking about, you know, employment and, um, you know, yeah, as you were talking about that, I think one of the things that I, I was thinking about is that it all just, like, when you think about it, it all still goes back to this idea of social support, because I'm just assuming and I'm imagining someone, um, you had a contact or some social support network put you in place with that job or with that organization to be able to provide you housing, right? Yeah. So I, one of one of the friends from my network said, "Hey, do you know of this place?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "No." So they got me a phone number and put me in touch. And and but without that, I had no idea that the, that the services even existed. And which kind of goes to one of the things I do since I've been home as well is, you know, I, I'm now a board member of that organization. And um, because of the work we do in the prisons, I'm often in the women's prison. And I tell them, I ask people all the time, "Hey, are any of you going home?" Uh, yeah. Well, is it within the next six months? Yeah. Well, do you have a place to go? And you would be surprised how many times I hear no. And the next thing I'm like, okay, fill out this application and submit it. So you have the same opportunity I had. But the same point, 
I'm dealing with, I was dealing with a woman the other, other day that was going home in three weeks, had no idea where she was going and had no idea that this service even existed. So if it wasn't for me standing in the classroom saying, Hey, here you go. You, you have help. Um, who knows what would have happened to her. And, you know, I know a lot of people's support systems are, you know, not going to be the same as yours. Um, was your support system mostly like comprised of people who have the shared experience as you or were these, you know, fam- people who don't have the same experience? No, in my world, actually, it was very well. Again, I, I was fortunate enough to avoid the criminal justice system as a whole before I went in. So everybody I dealt with, um, if they had experience, it was in the services area. In other words, they were helping folks, but very few of them had any interaction with the criminal justice system whatsoever. So they were, um, so that, and, and that makes me think of like, there's just, they had a more, like the lens that they were looking at you through was, you know, a second chance lens, um, you yeah, know, a right. supportive lens. And sometimes I don't feel like some people who are going through this process have people who are, you know, approaching with that lens. Um, and so what advice would you provide for people that are, you know, don't have the shared experience, but are, you know, making attempts and supporting individuals with this experience? Um, well, the first advice I would have is don't assume knowledge. You know, it's, uh, I see this all the time where, you know, there's this concept of like, oh, you're an adult now, right? And it's because of your simple age and you know how to do adulting things. And even the people I work with now are continually surprised when they run into this with other folks we work with this is how they not know to do that. Well, you've lived a very restricted social experience of, of being incarcerated. Things that we, things that we take for granted in the world, people have no exposure to that. And so understand that the people coming home are going to struggle with things that we consider every day. And it's real easy. I guess you can be judgmental about that. But remember, that's part of the, the function of prison is to restrict social experience. And the things that we assume people know, they were not allowed to experience it. You know, whether it's simple things like bank accounts and then how to, how to do that or, or how to pay your bills. You know, we, we, we assume a knowledge of just because you're an adult, you know, how to, how to adult. And it's just not true. Yeah. I think that's, that's very valid of, and we have to, you know, kind of supply them with the tools to come out here and, you know, be equipped and to be successful. Um, so I wanted to also ask you of, I know you've done some work, um, well, you're doing some work with Unlock Labs. Um, would yeah. you be willing to just share with us the type of work, what what Unlock Labs is, the mission, and uh-huh. um, what type of work are you doing there? Sure. Um, and that's probably a, almost a segment by itself as to how we got here, but the very short version is, you know, in my drive to increase access to education and facing a, a decreasing staffing problem, I, I started trying to build digital access to education from inside the prison. I had administrative support for the idea, kind of taught myself how to code without the internet and built the first prototype to say, hey, we can do this. Um, and we were given permission to, but at the time I had no idea how to actually do those things. So I had a friend reach out to uh, Launch Code, which is like a, a coding coding bootcamp organization here in St. Louis and 
my co-founder of Unlock Labs is the one who actually responded to that. And we started with, hey, I just want to learn how to code and maybe we can design a certificate program so that folks leaving prison have some kind of resume. And by that time, I had an idea of maybe going home and looking at my own, it would have been something like, oh, I'm 42 and no work history, no education, no job experience. Uh, please hire me. And, that, you know, and by the way, I'm a felon. You know, my chances of succeeding at that point were pretty low. So I was trying to find some way of getting a paper behind me that says I have some skill. And between those two things of trying to provide education and get some skills, um, things grew organically from there. And we we started teaching a coding program in partnership with Launch Code in three prisons in Missouri. And then began employing some of the people who graduated our program and, and iterating on that learning system. We partnered with the uh, Washington, Washington University here in St. Louis. And now people who are building and designing this learning management platform are doing so so that other folks can use that same platform to gain access to education. And we're doing a liberal arts degree for WashU through the platform now and growing access to things like basic education and vocational training skills. So as a quick summary, Unlock Labs, we take justice-involved individuals and apply them to solving the problems that are most obvious in prison, which includes access to education. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, um, and that's, I feel like that's a very unique way to go um, as far as, uh, especially since you said that you really didn't have like a lot of experience with technology to be in a technologically based organization. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, so. Right now, this program is implemented into the Missouri uh, universities, right? Well, some of them at least. Yeah, so we're, currently we're in Missouri. We're also partnering with Hudson Link in New York to do a deploy in Sing Sing very soon. We have the first equipment in place. And uh, on the other side of that, we have... Uh, sorry, I got to start for a second. So we're, we're working in Missouri and New York right now, but we have conversations with several other states about growing there as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so like, what is the, the broader vision for Unlock Labs? Um, 
There's a couple couple ways to answer that. I mean, one of the ones I like to tell people is what we're trying to build um, in our first stage is universal access to education inside of uh, prisons. I mean, day, like, if you or I wanted to learn something from our repair to theoretical physics, we'd just go on YouTube. But there's that access doesn't exist in prison. And a lot of times the difference between people and succeeding or not is their access to their education they had before they come home. So we want to build public infrastructure, which means... We're nonprofit. We have no interest in profiteering on this work. We just simply want to build the systems that should be in place so that people have an opportunity to to upskill and and and, and succeed in life. And if we do our job really well, we'll go out of business because we'll build something that exists for the public welfare and uh, and uh, you know it will just be maintained by states. So that's really that's kind of our 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 mission that we approach this. Um, beyond that, we want to expand opportunities for people who are closest to the problem to become part of the solution. You know, um, we've seen through our coding program that, you know, you give, give a skill set to folks who are justice involved and lo and behold, they'll solve justice problems. You know, we've seen people deal with um, good time credit calculations, which are done haphazardly and, and not at all efficiently, or we've, we've seen people deal with court document automa- automation um, through their technology skills. So, we're looking to grow as an organization in this field of taking people that we've trained and just letting them solve these problems that we all know exist and, and seem to not be able to find a solution to. And so if people wanted to like get involved, whether they are just as involved or if people who are not just as involved and wanted to just support, um, how could they do that? Um, well, there's a couple things. If you look at our, our website, um, which admittedly is under undergoing a, a refinement right now. There are there's a contact form, and if you're interested in volunteering or getting, or you have some kind of skill or just a simple interest, then by all means use that contact form to reach out to us. I'm one of two people who sees sees those emails that come through there, and uh, we'll certainly answer. Um, if you support what we're doing and and don't really have time, but uh, there's also a place to donate because, like I said, we are we are completely funded by philanthropy dollars at this this stage of our organization. And you know, when we put technology into prisons, it costs money. So, um, but we take either. Like if somebody just just has an extra hour or two and they want and they have some kind of way to contribute, then by all means, reach out through our forum and uh, let us know, and we we can talk about how how people can get involved. Thank you for sharing that because I, you know, I imagine somebody in the audience is uh, interested or um, would like to support. So I always like to ask that information and I will make sure that I put uh, your website um, in the description box so people can access it. And if they want more information, then they can go there for sure. Um, I do want to ask. Go ahead. I was just saying thank you so much for doing that. Like I said, sometimes it's hard to get word out and let people know what we're up to. No, I, I, I definitely appreciate it. Um, I do want to ask you before, you know, we get ready to close out or anything. Um, if you had one message that you wanted to, people with the shared experience to have after listening to this podcast episode um, or just any advice that you would want to give them, what would it be? You know, at the end of the day, people who are injustice involved are just still people. And we have the same needs that everybody else needs, that everybody else has, but we also have the same potential everybody else has. You know, if you just just support somebody who's gone through this struggle just a little bit, you'd be amazed at what they can do to contribute back to the world. 
Yeah, I think that's an important thing, not just for people who are supporting, but also for just as involved individuals to know themselves um, is that yeah. you you are also a person and you have just as much potential as um, people who don't have the experience as you um, or are in the circumstances of which you are in. So I do appreciate you for sharing that. And Jessica, I, w- I do want to thank you for coming on and just talking about your experience and just being so open um, to share that and giving the advice that you have offered. More Life is just really appreciative and like we really value these conversations of and we will continue to bring them to the forefront um, and to our audience. So thank you very much. Absolutely. And thank you for giving me an opportunity. And I would, if uh, it's okay with you, I don't mind sharing my work email if people just want to reach out directly um, and learn more about what we're doing or discuss the, the issue more. So you can, you can certainly get my work email if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, I will definitely link everything in the bio description. Um, I'll also try to link um, some information just regarding reentry in the bottom as well, okay. just in case if people Please. want to know more, um, it'll all be in the description box. Um, but I do thank you all for listening today. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please push the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at more life, the reentry podcast. Thank you. Thank you.